Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my episode with Samara Hernandez, founding partner of Chingona Ventures, where she invests at the pre-seed and seed stages in industries that are massively changing and founders whose backgrounds uniquely position them to create businesses in growth markets that are often overlooked. Without further ado, here's Samara. So I want to start at the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to finance? So it's interesting because I grew up in a non-traditional background and I didn't have, I guess, anyone in my family or any relative or friend that I knew was in finance. So I actually started working at a hair salon in high school and I thought I was going to be a hairstylist. But I picked up math and science really quickly being young. And so I ended up applying to the University of Michigan and got an engineering degree there. And while I was there, I joined the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, and it took me to a conference where Goldman Sachs was there. And I had done some engineering internships, but I was like, oh, this is interesting. Goldman Sachs, what do you guys do? I had no idea. This was 2004. 2004. And they're like, well, you know, here, we'll, we'll tell you what we do, but give us your resume. And we talked and they're like, we need more engineers in finance. And so that conversation turned into two summer internships and it led me to, to Wall Street during the height of, you know, in the middle 2000s, 04, 05, 06, where it was just an incredible time to be in finance. And I just fell in love with being on Wall Street then. And so that ended up being, you know, 10 years at Goldman Sachs and then now in, in finance and venture capital. That's amazing. That's a really amazing story. How do I guess you analyze and think about opportunities both on the B2B side and on the B2C and maybe qualities of a founder that you like to see or if there are different skill sets that you like to see in terms of those two broad areas? 
Yeah, it, we're we're generalists in nature, but we see opportunities in a couple different sectors. So we like to look at fintech, future of work, femtech, food, health and wellness, and ad tech. And our portfolio is about fifty percent B two B, fifty percent B two C. And there's stuff that we look at in both B two B and B two C. And there's stuff that we look at more on the B two C than on the B two B side. And I guess because this is called consumer BC, <laughs> I could I should touch on the B two C side a little bit more. But on the consumer side, what we always look for, you know, founder, market, product, capital efficiency, kind of exits, all that in the space. The change in, on the consumer side, as you know, we've kind of seen in the, in the industry is that a lot of consumer companies have raised a lot of money. The exits haven't been there necessarily, right? And so many of them haven't, I've still yet to exit, even if they're you know, unicorns, or they've poured a ton into kind of the traditional paid marketing. And, and we've seen a ton of that over the last few years. That's not anything new. So what we look for a lot of times in the, on the consumer side is a lot more capital efficiency, a little bit more traction early on, even if they come in at the pre-seed or seed stage, organic traffic coming through, how they're building community, how they're, we call it guerrilla marketing tactics they're using. So things around that are not traditional, that are not paid, but that get people people's attention that uh, build your core loyal customers. And then we look at capital efficiency is super important to us. So how much have they raised or how much have they bootstrapped and where have they gone to at what point with that money? Because if we know that they can get to call it, you know, 8 million in top line revenue with only $600,000 raised, that's indicative of the, you know, what they can do with call it $4 million raised, right? And the top line revenue there. And then also, as we think about exits, we think about, okay, you know, maybe it's not a billion dollar exit, or if it's, you know, they get acquired for less than that, but they raise less than your traditional kind of huge amounts of funding, then that's still a big exit for us. So I think about it from that perspective on the consumer side. And then just kind of a little bit something, something you to Chingona Ventures is that I like to look at markets that are you know massive, growing, and overlooked. And so one of the investments that we recently made into a B2C company was a company called Suma Wealth. Suma is a financial wellness platform for the Latino community, which the Latino community is one of the, the fastest growing demographics in the United States. We have the highest purchasing power. One in every four kids being born in the United States is Latino. And anybody that isn't investing in this market, I just don't understand because it's one of the most overlooked markets. And we saw this with the election. We saw this with a bunch of other stuff. So the founder has built community. She has 30 years of experience here. She knows how to grow it. She knows how to grow it fast. And she knows how to engage with this community that buys differently, that invests differently, that trusts banks differently. And when she went to go launch this financial tech platform that nobody else has gained significant market share in, I was like, okay, I'm in. So that's one example of a company that had a unique perspective on a market that knows how to grow, that knows how to understand them. And then on the other side of how we do the consumer investing and, and what we look for differently than B2B. But what are some things you think needs to maybe change in order for more money going towards companies that are, you know, impacting maybe underrepresented communities? So it has to start at the top. I know a lot of people give VCs a lot of a hard time on, you know, the lack of diversity and in tech. 
Right. And a lot of times in VC, especially at the earlier stages, it's very referral based. It's very, you know, network based. There's a ton more bias that happens because you're investing super early and there's less data. So there is a thing there. And there's been a lot of movement in bringing in more women to VC, bringing more, you know, getting more promotions, all that. But it really has to start at the top. And what is the top? That's with limited partners. And, you know, for me as a VC, if I'm making investments and many times with my network, and if I'm getting those returns and my LP doesn't really care where I get those investments, I'm not going to change my ways, right? I can still raise money. I can still raise bigger funds. And I have to be careful with this because it's not an either or. It's not like I make investments and I get great returns or I invest in diverse founders. And that's been a big, big topic of conversation, right? Many times when you invest, when people think you invest in diverse founders, it's women, it's only women or it's only minorities, it's donations, people create separate vehicles and they call it impact. And it sends the message that investing in these founders is not profitable, which I fundamentally believe is wrong. And I've built my whole thesis on it. Now, I don't only invest in women and minorities. I've actually invested in all white, male, straight teams. I look for great businesses. But as research after research shows that diverse teams from all kinds of diversity, it's not just a check the box to check the box, but race, gender, background experiences. If you're an immigrant, right? All these different, you bring different perspectives to the table and you hear them and you make product decisions, you make sales strategy decisions, you build a company culture around that. These companies tend to outperform, right? And so for me, it's always been a case of an investable opportunity that's been overlooked. Venture investing has been the same for the last 20 years. The world has not been the same. And so anyways, back to what can be done, it comes at the top is from the LP side. Now, if I do see more limited partners, and that's family offices, endowments, institutions, changing their strategy and calling on fund managers to look at their team and their investments. And one of the company, one of the corporate companies that did this was PayPal Ventures. PayPal had committed $530 million to investing in the black and brown communities after the events, the unfortunate events this summer that caused a spark in conversation of our industry and the structural changes that needed to happen. And they've committed to this. And part of that, 50 million of that was committed to venture capital investing in fund managers that will ultimately go into these founders. We, Chingona Ventures was selected as as one of the eight that was going to receive this funding. And it was big news for us. It was big news for the industry as well as for the other fund managers. And you know what, that's a significant check. And that's something that can, you know, that launched our fund to raise and will ultimately get more money into these investments. And my ultimate goal is to prove that it's not a charity, that you don't need to give donations, that you don't have to have it as a separate fund, but it will get outsized returns and it will be industry averages because these founders are building businesses that are in growing markets that are overlooked, that understand the customer in a unique way, that can build products that understand the end user and that could build products that are taking advantage of these new regulations that are changing, whether that's environmental, governmental, or other. And for me, it's an investable opportunity first and foremost. And the more we can get limited partners that invest in these funds to then in turn make these commitments or make these investments because it's not an either or, you can get better returns with these diverse teams. That's the way we're going to change this industry. I think you made a number of good points there. I think one of my main takeaways was in order for this industry to change, it can't be looked at any of this type of investing women or underrepresented folks. It can never be looked at as a charity 
and something that you feel like you've done good, like they actually lead to outside returns. There's a number of research documented around that documents this around having diverse teams. And as well, I mean, just thinking about some of the opportunities that you described to look into, right? The finance summa, you know, that is targeting the Latino community. Another, you know, we that I mentioned that's targeting the Asian community. So anyway, I think that's how you not, you might not be able to see those opportunities if you're, for example, just like a white male, right? It's possible. So or there's, or there's no one on your team that has these networks, right? people come from diverse networks and i'm not just talking about gender and race you know we're talking about geography we're talking about upbringing we're talking about different networks and so for me it's less of a check the box and more of a what's going to bring a unique perspective different networks to the table to make better investments Absolutely. Totally agree with you there. What have you seen, you know, these scrappy entrepreneurs, founders that are located maybe in secondary and tertiary markets do well that maybe don't have an investor network or don't come from a big market that's a big, you know, VC market per se? Yeah, well, what I always advise early on for founders that come from the non-coastal cities, I call it. So when I talk about that, I talk, I think about non-SF, non-LA, non-New York, not Boston, kind of everywhere else. And um, and I have made investments in Chicago and Boulder and Houston and Miami that were outside of the coast. When I think about that, I always think about, okay, with as early as possible, even if I lead it, the deal is getting investors outside of the coast that are either pre-seed or seed. And there's a lot more pre-seed investors on the coast than in the Midwest, uh, or I guess now there's a little bit more that are coming to market. But I've always co-invested or tried to co-invest with other pre-seed investors on the coast because one, they're in the same stage. We're not competitive, right? We can't close the full round. And so there's a lot more collaboration there. And it helps people build their network outside of the coast by from these investors, bring in their network, as well as understand what sort of metrics and what sort of things that, you know, Series C or Series A investors are looking for outside of the Midwest. So I always advise companies to do that part of it. Now, alternatively, companies that are, are on the coast that want to build a presence here, especially in consumer, you know this better than anybody else, but like, it's great to test out your product in business in the big markets. But what about the other percentage of the country, right? Test it out in a small town in Illinois. That's where you really see if you can get scale. And so companies like Tiny Organics, which you had on your show, which we were just talking about, Betsy's just an incredible human being, period, CEO. And so is her partner, Sophia. But that company started in New York. They're they they do frozen baby food and they deliver it to your home. They came to the Midwest because they had gotten early validation in New York. And one, Betsy's from here. She wanted to move back here. But two, they really wanted to expand out here. Every other kind of baby food company was focusing on the big cities and they wanted to build out their presence here. And so they came to the Chicago and they couldn't find early kind of pre-product, pre-revenue. Or they had a product, they had some revenue, but basically pre-launch, they couldn't find a lot of companies, VCs that invest in pre-launch companies. And one of my friends introduced me to her fell in love with it. I made an investment before they launched and she eventually ended up moving out here. She's expanded out here. We've done events. We've done a lot of organic growth outside of the big cities. And that's, I think, attributed to a lot of her early success. So there's a lot of things that people, even on the coast, I think will benefit from bringing in investors from the Midwest, especially on the consumer side, that not only for capital, but in terms of building your presence out here and in terms of expanding your consumer base. 
No, that makes a ton of sense in terms of why a company that's even located on the coast, you know, should also be looking, whether it's an investor or a partnership or what have you, but- Or employees. Employees, exactly, exactly. Within like the middle, you know, a Chicago, a Cincinnati, a Detroit. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I want to know, you know, what I always am interested by personally, investors that are generalists like yourself, like where you have, you know, 50% of your portfolio is B2B and, you know, 50% roughly is, you know, B2C. And- since you also invest in food and bev, when I've chatted to investors like Will McClellan, who only focuses primarily on B2C, and he thinks about, especially on like the food and beverage side, he thinks about what he does actually when it comes to portfolio construction, much more similar in terms of what you see in growth equity, in terms of maybe like a 5X or a 10X or a 15X, rather than, you know, in software, which it could be a lot more binary outcome. It could be in a thousand X or it could be zero. I'm always really interested in folks like you who manage to do both things extremely well on the software side and also on the food and beverage side. But how do you manage that portfolio since your return profile could look very different? Yeah. And maybe it comes from my time at Goldman Sachs, where we constantly talked about portfolio diversification. And we talked about having a 40, 30, 20, 10 split, right? 40% in equity, 30% in fixed income, 20% in non-correlated asset classes, 10% in alternatives. And when I think about portfolio construction, I think about the piece, that piece of it. I mean, you have to hit home runs regardless. Like this is a home run business. It's not a, you know one to 2x is going to make the fund and that's when it was going to get you outsized returns. So that's why for me, when I think about a B2B investment versus a B2C investment, when I think about capital efficient, when I think about how much needs to get raised in all these scenarios, it always comes down to the end goal of hopefully getting that, you know, huge return. And, and what does that huge return look like? Maybe it's a hundred X, maybe it's a 10 X, but is the market growing? Are there downstream investors? Is this company capital efficient? Can they get to profitability? Can they control their own destiny? Who are acquired in the space? Like that's what I asked regardless. Now in the food and bev space, I've actually only made one investment in food and bev, which is tiny. So the other ones have been in food tech. And I tend to do less of food and bev and more kind of tech pure tech, especially recently, I've I've done less and less of that. There's one deal that I'm going to do now, which I am so excited about, which I can't say because we're doing final diligence, but I've been talking to this company for a year and you have to have her on if you haven't already. But I won't say the company name, but I told her she ruined any sort of consumer investments for me ever up until this point. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason why is because I saw her about a year and a half ago and she, if and as I say all this stuff, some of people in your audience might be able to like know who this person is because she's a legend, I think. But um, she's in a space that hasn't gotten venture funding where you could not join any accelerator historically to be in the industry that she's in. She didn't have any investor, like no VCs focus on this. She couldn't post ads on Facebook and Instagram. She got kicked off. She had to sue people like for advertisements because of the space that she's in. And she kept grinding and grinding and grinding. And when I met her, I mean, she, she 60 plus gross margins raised less than 600,000 in, in bootstrap over, you know, close to 6 million in top line revenue. Like what the heck? This person is just a machine. And by the way, that was like last year. She's killed those. She's gone way above those numbers already. And we're finally invested. We met a year ago. We kept you know in touch. And now my friend's leading the deal and we're participating. But I look at every other consumer deal that comes to the door and I'm just like, okay, they've 
poured money into Facebook and Instagram, or they're raising money to put into paid, or they haven't signed up their first customer yet, or, you know, all this other stuff. And for me, I know, I know it's really, really hard building a business, a consumer business. But when I think about consumer, I'm like, that's a high bar for me. <laughs> and I think about this person. So I think like she literally could get to a hundred million plus in revenue and, you know, with very little raise. And when I think about exits, that's how I think about like the less you raise, you don't have to have as big of an exit on the other side to get a really good return for for um, investors or for yourself. And so for me, I'm like, how capital efficient is somebody? And I look at that, I'm like, okay, that's a perfect example. But then she's also had acquisition offers already, which she hasn't taken. And that, that's nothing special in the sense, well, it is special, but it's not special in the sense that many people can't get acquisitions offers early on. And she just turned it down and was like, nope, I'm building this business. I'm going big. And you know, she, she's going to crush it. So Anyways, I'm excited about it. And once we do the deal, I want you to have her on because she's incredible. I'm so curious who it is. I am <laughs> so curious. Yeah, because we've had on a few women entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And anyway, very, very curious to say the least. When you speak with founders, since you're looking at that pre-seed, very, very early stage level, is there a particular question that you think is most important to ask? Yeah, I mean, at the pre-seed, it's all a lot about founder market fit. Right. And people throw that a lot around a lot. There's obviously the other check marks that you have to check off regardless. So is this a space you're interested in? Is it growing? Is it competitive? What's your unique value add? But there's the big piece is the founder market fit. And it's the early validation that people actually want this. So the founder market fit is like, I love just hearing their stories of their background, right? Where did they start from? Where did they grow up? What was their upbringing like? Right. How did they get into the school they got into? Did they drop out? Did that, like, and I don't, I'm not a big Ivy League, you know, I think two of my portfolio companies dropped out of undergrad and not because they had a cushion because they, they had a family of immigrants, but because they found this big idea and like, you know, so I, I'm not big on that, but it's more around the grit. I like the hustle. I like the, what gets them, what's this chip on their shoulder that they have that they are to prove. Right. And so that piece of it, but also looking at how they tell their story on, on their background and their successes and their failures. Right. So having a confident, but obviously humble person and just, and, and then in that, how that touches on their values and how they think about the business. And then this aha moment of, okay, what is this problem? And you'll find out a lot in that piece of why somebody's so obsessed with solving this problem. Now, that's just the first piece of it and the most important piece of it. But then it goes into how do they find their first customer? Did they teach themselves how to code to do something? What is this, this guerrilla, again, guerrilla marketing tactics that they did to do their first thing, right? And so in some cases, it's teaching themselves how to code. Sometimes it's doing something that's non-scalable, but proof Proving that there is a problem and in the market and people are willing to pay for it. So one example of that is a company we didn't end up investing in, but I thought it was brilliant. And, and we didn't end up investing for different reasons, but it was a dating app for the queer community. And they basically, this woman has no tech background or anything like that. But basically what she did is just create a community because she realized that a lot of the traditional dating apps, this they, they don't solve this problem for the queer community. And so she created this online platform and she got you know a ton of followers. And she's like, what? if I just posted 
did an ad and just said, Hey, if you want to post an ad on to meet somebody, I'm going to charge $5, send me your ad. And she was like, sold out within a day. She posted it every single day for a month. And then she showed that people were willing to pay to meet somebody. And there was enough people in her community where they were able to post, pay for it. And then she had enough data where she actually met somebody. And I think somebody got married through it or something like that. It was just like, she showed data on that without building a code, anything to, to build out the application. And so then she was able to raise, I think a two to $3 million first round to actually build out the tech. So I think what people, and the pre-seed stage, what people want to see is that, or at least for me, what I want to see is one, founder market fit in their story. But then two is what is it, especially in the consumer side that they've built around community or have they had a transaction without building any tech that shows that people really want this. And so that's what I look for in the pre-seed. No, that's really, really helpful. What's the best piece of advice that you've received? So it's funny because when I was in sales, when I first got into it, I came from an engineering background where I focused on the numbers so much and I would call people or go into meetings and they would just kick me out of their office or hang up the phone on me. They're like, get out of my office. Like, And I was, I just didn't understand. I had an engineering background. I was like, I'm smart. I know my numbers, blah, blah, blah. And my boss came in there and I went to, into his office and he's like, you're in sales and you're covering Dallas. People need to hear your story. You need to ask them about their day. You need to ask them about their lives, like talk to them like they're people. And the minute I started doing that, we eventually got into business. We got into performance. We got into all that. And for me, it completely changed the way I think about things. It doesn't, especially in VC and with founders, like everyone's really smart. You build a cool tech, you're all engineers from Google, whatever, you know, like you're all super, super smart. And some people can get away with being assholes. Like I'm just not one of those people. I've never been able to. And I don't think many people are 99% of the population. But when I pitch or when you know, LP is when founders pitch, when you speak like many times, especially as a type A smart person, you want to get the numbers, right? You want to get the information, right? Especially women many times, right? And it's just like people are people and they're, we're all human and we all have a story and we all want to connect with somebody regardless of whatever you're selling. So focus on that and the numbers will come and the business case will come. And so that was one of the best pieces of advice I received. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I loved how a piece of advice came up to you through when you're at Goldman. That was really interesting to hear. And yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. Samara, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Samara's full episode. 